Lord God, I thank you that as we gather here in your name and we worship you, that you are so worthy and that you are present here with us. So we welcome you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you bless the preaching of your word, Lord Jesus, that it may transform us to know you and love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to be back with you, and it's wonderful to get to be inside the building again uh, as we worship. Although that was, for those here last week, that was a beautiful time of morning prayer. Uh, couldn't have worked out better under the circumstances. So. Well, here we are at the beginning of football season, and so in thinking about some of the things we were going to talk about this morning, my mind couldn't help but go to some of the most poignant football memories from anyone who grew up around this area. Uh, older Browns fans will probably know right away who and what I'm talking about. Probably all Browns fans at some point um, would recognize this. But imagine for a moment that you are a late round NFL draft pick and actually makes the team. Then you play in the pro, pro game for 14 years and involved in numerous big games, including the Super Bowl. Now imagine that your entire career is remembered for one play, which also happens to be your worst memory. Never mind the rest of that day had been huge, but your one mistake cost your team a victory and you spend the next three decades agonizing over it. If you haven't recalled yet, the moment I'm talking about is the fumble. Ernest Biner, running back for the Browns, Playing in Denver, Colorado in the AFC Championship game, the Browns mounted an almost miraculous comeback in the second half and were just on the one or two yard line trying to score a touchdown which would tie it up late in the game. The right play was called and it was executed and just as these things happen, he fumbled. And the ball was recovered by the Broncos who went on then to win the game and go to the Super Bowl, much to the immense sadness of millions in Northeast Ohio. It hurts even bringing it up. There's those few moments in life uh, I can remember exactly where I was and the exact image on the screen and seeing that play happen. I wish that I couldn't. <laughs> After making it into the NFL from a small town in Georgia, Ernest Biner became one of the best dual threat running backs in the league. He helped the Cleveland Browns return to some of their greatest years in the 1980s. And just like when it looked like he would be the playoff hero, having been a huge part of why the team was even there in that game to begin with and about to try to tie it up, he was stripped of his glory along with the football. In 2020, Biner said, it took me years and years to get over it. It does not need to happen the way I carried the fumble. I carried it for years and years and years, and I was never the same player. I never had the same type of freedom of expression on the football field after the fumble. And the reason? I never wanted to look at that play. I never wanted to look at or think about that game again. A little more on that later. But you might see how a story like that may parallel to the story we've been following these last weeks 
in the gospel reading. Last week's gospel, we saw Peter at clearly one of his finest moments as a follower of Christ. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus is asking the disciples, who do people say I am? And they give different theories that people have about who Jesus is. And then he puts that pointed and personal question, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, speaking, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, proclaims and declares rightly that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the one who's been sent, the Christ. And Jesus commends him, being commended by Jesus, saying, Peter, you couldn't have known this unless the Lord has made this known to you. And yes, it's true. What a, it's one of the most powerful and profound revelations of Jesus as Messiah that we have in the scriptures. That's where we left it last week. This week we pick up the reading right along. It's the same story without a pause of a week in between. It's probably just moments in between. Moments between when Peter went from his finest moment, his speaking revelation and truth given to him by heaven above, to this. At that time then, after Jesus Remember, he, he did re, uh, affirm what Peter said, and he said to his disciples, not yet, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. And then he began telling some other things. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. None of that was part of what the expectation of what a Messiah is or what happens to a Messiah to be tortured, to be killed. What did they even think when he's talking about being raised? It was enough bothering and troublesome that Peter took Jesus aside. Jesus, I know I just said that you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, but come let me talk to you. Let me tell you how it is. And he began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, and on, but on the things of man. Peter fumbled. Pretty badly. As he will go on to do again, as all of us do, we have this experience of getting it right on in the Lord in one moment, and fumbling in the next it's our human experience. I don't even suspect that Peter had bad intentions when he took Jesus aside. He, he probably, he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus man to man. He loved him. No, Jesus, you're talking about being killed. Surely, heaven forbid this happen to you. Who wants to see something like that happen to somebody they care about? He probably wasn't having bad or satanic intentions but what he was doing was he had moved out of speaking out of a place of revelation, speaking out of a place of truth, speaking out of a place of anointing from God, to speaking out of regular, everyday, common sense, just what makes sense, what seems right, human thinking. Human thinking is different than God's thinking. 
Human thinking that naturally, and we all have it, if there's a way to avoid pain and trouble, that's probably the better way. He'd, he'd moved down from God's higher thinking and higher ways into human thinking and human ways. We read in Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So that's true. God's thoughts, God's ways, markedly different than ours, just in our humanity. But I pause here to say, let's not read that from Isaiah 55, God's thoughts and his ways are so much higher, and conclude, okay, yeah, so I, I could never know them. So, God, you're God, I'm not, I get it, your thoughts are higher than mine, your ways are higher than mine, so I, I would just back away. God, in his kindness, in his love, in relationship that he's created for us and with us, chooses to reveal his thoughts and his ways to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like Peter, we leak. We receive the revelation and we, we've, we have it and then it slips away. It's part of our human experience. But God's not saying my ways are higher than your ways so leave me alone. I believe God's invitation to us is saying, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, my ways higher than your ways, so come to me. Bring your thoughts to me. Ask me and receive my way of thinking and being and doing the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. In our reading from the New Testament this morning, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not, let us not default into the regular, worldly, common sense way of thinking. Just what makes sense? What's the least painful? What's the most expedient? Do not be conformed or to default into that, but to be transformed. We don't transform ourselves. We're transformed by God's power and by God's grace. How? By the renewing of our mind. By inviting and allowing God to change the way we think. I suggest that's not a one-time event. It's a process. It's a daily process. In my experience, it's a many times a day process. And some people get discouraged by that because they think, Lord, I want to have my mind set upon you. I want to be thinking your thoughts and your ways. And we get up and there's things to do and there's aggravations in traffic and there's work and there's distractions and before I know it, my mind is anywhere else and everywhere else. But what I find is, well, I'm prone to put shame on myself for that. Oh, I wanted so much to keep my mind on the Lord. What, why, why can't I do that? God's invitation is not shame. It's not stem aside, my ways are higher than yours. God's invitation is a continual invitation. Come to me. 
If, if your mind wanders away and gets distracted and misses the boat 50 times a day, there's 50 opportunities to come and turn back to the Lord, to re-engage, to say, God, I was here, but I want to be here. I want to be looking at your face. I want your thoughts. And he gives them generously without finding fault. It's his will for us that we would be transformed by the renewal of our mind and that he does the renewing. Well, that sounds good, but there is this part. Last week we talked about Jesus having the conversation with the Canaanite woman about calling her a dog. We unpacked that a bit. This week we're looking at get behind me, Satan. As, as dramatic and powerful as Jesus' affirmation of Peter was, of Peter's declaration that Jesus is Messiah, this is equally, I won't say overstated, but equally forcefully stated. Get behind me, Satan. What about this? Again, we can't fully know, but assuming that Peter's intention wasn't necessarily satanic, that it was well-meaning, that it was humanly thinking, that it was short-term thinking, what, what of this did Jesus see Satan in? Maybe Jesus recalled his temptation in the desert. See, Satan is the master of half-truths. That's why those half-truths trick us sometimes, cause us to believe, cause us to get pulled in, because there's a part of it that's true. When, when the devil was tempting Jesus in the desert, if you are really the Son of God, he almost wasn't, he was, okay, I'll give you that you're the Son of God, but why don't you turn these loaves into bread and feed yourself? Why don't you throw yourself off the top of this cliff, let the angels save you, put God to the test? Why don't you bow down and worship me and Forget all that suffering, cross, death stuff. I'll give you all of this. It's a half-truth. It's Satan saying, okay, son of God, fine. But the ways of God, no. God's ways are higher than ours. God's ways are higher than the devil's. You, you see, maybe Jesus recalled those temptations, which as fully divine fully human. Those temptations were real temptations. He was, in fact, in the desert and he was hungry and thirsty for real. He was learning and growing in his identity as the Son of God. And the, the temptation to have that proven, to have it justified, validated, was real. The temptation, we say, oh, Jesus, bow down and worship Satan. But the temptation to Forget the, all the hard parts of what he was sent to do. The cross, his death and resurrection. And get to being king and lord over all. That temptation for that is real. But Jesus knew from the word of God, from his relationship with the Father, that he saw the half-truth in that. Because in fact, there is no Messiah without the cross. There is no rescue. There's no restoration there's no one being saved without Jesus' work on the cross, his death, and his resurrection. And Jesus has, is revealing himself as Lord, Savior, the Christ, Messiah. Without the cross, his death, and resurrection, there's only death. Physical death, 
mental death, emotional death, and, and ultimately eternal spiritual death without the work that the Messiah has come to do, that we receive. In 2014, Ernest Biner, that was a long time after the fumble happened in 88, Ernest Biner went on to write a book called Everybody Fumbles. Interestingly, it's, it's about the football play, and he happily went on to have a fabulous career, played for other teams, was in, uh, won Super Bowls, has coached in the NFL. There's a lot of happy endings to the story, but he still, all these years later, is wrestling with everybody fumbles. Even better, part of what's in that book and part of the resolution of that is he brought that in his, some way, in a spiritual sense, to God, and that's where he worked that out some understanding of we all get it right and then get it wrong. We all see like dimly through a mirror. We all see in part, but not yet in full. We all at times receive God's truth and rejoice in it. And then moments later, pull Jesus aside and give him a dose of our own best thinking. Revert back to worldly thinking. But again, that's not a message of shame. That's a message of invitation. Knowing that that's true about us, Jesus says, come to me. Let me renew your thoughts and your mind day by day, all throughout the day. Last part of Ernest Biner's story for this morning. He's quoted saying, if you can get that spiritual foundation, it will help you become a better man. You have to own up to the mistakes you've made. You see them as mistakes and understand what the mistakes were. He didn't want to look at it for years and years and years, but he changed on that. He said the main reason to look back and understand what happened is to look at it in a way that you can take it, learn from it, grow from it. Every time you look at it, you're going to see something a little bit different than you could have having not looked at it. God's invitation to be more specific about coming to him throughout the day, continually asking him to renew our thinking, can look like this. Simply asking God for guidance in big and in small things. It's a prayer that he wants to answer. In Psalm 32, God says, I will show you the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. In the book of James, one of my favorite promises. It says, if anyone lacks wisdom, which I do all the time, then we should come to God and ask, and God gives generously and without finding fault. Not once, not twice, not you asked too many times, now you used it up continually and generously without finding fault. We can come and ask God to renew our mind, to change our way of thinking, to invite us up to his higher thoughts and his higher ways. And then what? It's not just an exercise of thinking. It's not just an intellectual exercise. Because following Jesus is believing, knowing, falling, being forgiven, getting back up, but also serving, walking in the way, doing the things that Jesus did, walking in the ways that he taught us. So part of having our 
what, what often changes our mind is to do something differently. We can think a different thought, but the more we do a different way, it becomes more and more ingrained in us. So the other part of this invitation that I would have us consider this morning is the invitation to follow Jesus by doing, by being in service. In the Gospel reading, chapter, uh, verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He said, take up his cross to them before he had done that. They didn't have the reference yet. That's a whole other sermon for another day. But he is saying, follow me. Deny yourself. Don't stay in the default settings of just what seems good and right in the world, what our mind comes to, defaults to, but follow me. Paul explains that in his letter to the Romans in a little more detail. Spells it out so that we could know. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving the one, in serving the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Our invitation is to ask God for his mind, his thoughts, and his ways. And then to look around watchfully in life and look for ways to express those. To share, to give away the good gift of grace that he's put in us for the benefit of the body of Christ, for the benefit of all. We won't always know what to do, but one of my favorite prayers or my favorite ideas is just asking God for the next right thing. Sometimes I, there's a lot of things to do in the day, a lot of big deal things, small deal things, and I don't know where to start, so when I get stuck, God, I'm asking for your guidance. Please show me simply the next thing that I should do. And then the next thing. And then the next thing. Knowing that he's close and not far away, that he walks with us, that it's the prayers that he's delighted to answer because he loves us. He is the Son of God. He is Messiah. He is the Christ. He's our Savior and our friend. I pray even this morning, Lord, as we hear these words, that we would have your grace and have a yes in our hearts to your invitation to know you more, to leave our own thoughts and our own ways and be transformed into more and more of your thoughts and your ways and your heart in the service that you'd have us do and receive. Make it so, Lord, today and every day. Amen. Let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Amen. 